Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Somehow you're absent from the world scene, the important spaces in society, the contributions, the achievements. So you take a back seat and you celebrate the people that you do see. And it develops a complex in you, especially as a young kid. I got the talk that all Black parents give to their kids. Baby, you can be anything you want to be. You can even be president if you want to. But every Black kid remembers hearing those words. It's eerie as if it's part of race memory somehow. They're really not allowed to be their authentic selves because of the stereotypes that surround Black people in general than Black girls. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Today's conversation is with an educator who has over 25 years experience serving teachers, students and families in the US public education system. She has been an English teacher at the middle and high school levels and instructional specialist at the district level where she engaged in research, facilitation and content development. Currently, she serves as principal of a large suburban middle school near Washington, D.C. A self-described professional people person, she has a knack for interpersonal connection and leverages the skill to foster community within schools, businesses and civic organisations. An equity advocate, she has a passion for exploring the concept of community, how it creates shared culture and the ways in which that culture impacts the identity formation of minoritized populations and the, their subsequent ability to navigate public spaces with agency. She states, in every sense of the word, as people, we are built to connect. My goal is to help others realize our common humanity and use the power of connection to create a world in which we are all seen, heard and valued. When not immersed in peopling, she can be found with a book, catching rays of sunshine in the great outdoors, listening to good music or putting paint on canvas in purposeful ways. I personally am so grateful for Karen's time in engaging with me. We consider quite candidly some extremely sensitive and hard-hitting topics that have only recently become more widely discussed in the wake of this last year. It is important for us to realise the scale of the challenges those children and families most closely impacted by systemic racism and gender bias. This conversation sheds light on what those in education face with youth, especially of colour, every day, and how educators and teachers can help empower girls of colour to make the change that is so very needed. A change that has taken far too long for many of us to wake up to. With full disclosure, I did not conduct this interview in my usual manner 
as I felt the flow of my guests' stories and her raw, genuine encounters leading a school as a black woman through a global pandemic and the racial reckoning of 2020 were the stories we needed to hear and learn from. That being said, it is my utmost pleasure to be welcoming you, Principal Karen Bryant, to the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Ramita. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, it's really lovely to have you join me. And I appreciate the fact that you are actually still working from home and running a school in these crazy times. How's that all going for you? Wow, that has been like a dream and maybe not a dream in the magical, (laughs) you know, sense of the word, but um, it's been an experience unlike any other I've had. I've been very proud of the work that our teachers have been doing from home, transitioning from, you know, in building to um, at home and using a virtual platform to engage students. And actually right now we are in the process of a phased in return to um, the school building for families who would like to do that. Um, Our main platform remains virtual for the remainder of the school year, but we're gonna phase in some students um, beginning next month, so. Gosh, I can't even imagine the challenges you as a school, as a principal, the teachers and parents are all facing. And you say this has been going on for over a year in America for where you are? Yes. So for my particular school district, uh, the last time we were all in the school building together was March 13th, 2020. Gosh, that is so trying. And I can only imagine how many challenges everyone in the, in totality must be facing it's it's not a, an easy time for anybody and i suppose i mean even pre-covid there were challenges in the district that you're teaching it's interesting though that you didn't feel you needed to have a specific job in mind as you were going to university which i think so many young students at least in my experience feel they need to know what course to sign up for in order to know what kind of career they need to have and i think this this last sort of few years has shown um, so we're coming sort of full circle. And, and I think lots of kids are now going to school for the sake of just going to school. But I love the fact that you just studied English because you love English, as opposed to saying, I'm going to go and then be an English teacher. Um, it's such a nice message for students to hear that you don't have to know what career you're going to get into until later. And, you know, I never thought of it in the light that you just said, actually. But you're right. It did allow me to pursue a passion and then in doing so. Yeah, no, that's that's the way, definitely the way. And I wish we could give more and more reminders about that to children and not to put that pressure on themselves uh, in order to try and know what they need to be at 11, 12, 13 even, you know. So, um, yeah, that's really important. You also said as a woman of color, you hadn't quite understood that your color was different and that you didn't have the same concerns until you became a teenager almost about what it was that made you look or act differently to the things that you were seeing in media? Yeah, you know, in, in some ways, and and interesting enough, you, you ended your last uh, statement with the media because when we were overseas, um, there wasn't a lot of, uh, for example, television that we took in. You know, um, I would actually say, and this this may sound uh, funny to some of your viewers, but it was, it was modern times. I'm, I mean, I'm not that old, but it was modern times. But we really did not have television programming. I mean, we had a television set, but we didn't get really great reception. And so um, the only, I can remember tuning in, I believe it was on, um, it was on Sundays or Saturdays, 
we would tune in, um, the television station would come on and the fuzz would dissolve just enough for us to take in the, what I call the Spanish soul train. It was called a plaza. <laughs> it was like a dance show. And I remember seeing Michael Jackson there for the first time and he was, you know, doing his thing. But so we really didn't consume a lot of television media. We would get up early on Saturday mornings to turn the radio on to listen to a children's radio program. So we didn't spend a lot of time in front of televisions the way that, you know, we do now. So it's, yeah, almost like the ignorance was might have been blessed for you at that point. Yes. Yeah. It may have protected me a little longer than, you know, some of my um, friends, you know, um, may have had. But yeah, so, you know, 11 year old, 11 years old and back in the States and you begin to take in the world around you as a preteen. And then you begin to see, um, you know, we, we dove right in, you know, unfortunately we dove right into the, the fast food, but we also dove into, you know, American culture at the time. So of course I'm starting to consume media and you begin to notice, you know, what's missing. So I could pick up, you know, I'd love to read. And of course, uh, back then we had these, um, uh, magazines, you know, these teenage magazines um, that you'd pick up and no one in those magazines looked like me, you know, so I could celebrate the celebrities of the time that were popular and the movies at the time that were popular with everyone, but it was sort of your standard white American culture, but we'd identify with it because that was all there was to take in and to consume, you know, and so you kind of went along with that flow of, um, you know, sort of middle-class white America, which um, I would say um, school systems are built around anyways, you know, schooling and the whole process of schooling is built around, around that. And so if not for, you know, at home, I'm getting one message, you know, I'm loved, you know, um, I'm giving message affirmations, right? And I didn't realize that my parents purposefully gave that messaging to us. There were three, three kids, three of us purposely gave us those affirmations, those messaging to sort of counteract or balance out what we were getting outside of the home because the messages outside of the home weren't necessarily always positive, you know, from Hollywood, from, you know, magazines on the, the news show, you know, you can turn on the news and you can hear, you know, a negative report about somebody who was black, but, it was rare that you would see the, the triumphs or the achievements or someone being highlighted, you know, that looked like me. And it begins to form an identity in you that somehow you're absent from the world scene. Somehow you're absent from the important spaces in society, the contributions, the achievements. And so you take a back seat and you celebrate the people who are that you do see and it develops a complex in you, especially as a young kid. Massively, yeah. And it can damage your whole view and skew the way you think about yourself more than anything, which is the worst part of it all, really, isn't it? I mean, there's so you've said so much in there that I want to pick up on. And I think your good fortune of having your parents and having a strong support system to guide you through these difficult questions and these voids that you were experiencing throughout your teen years was huge and instrumental. 
I wonder then, is that what sort of made you want to do things for other children in the education sector that may not have that support system? Is that what guided you towards becoming a leader in education so we could change this? And I know things are changing, but it's taken a long time, probably too long. And even in the force of change, I still feel like we're not doing enough. What do you think about that? Honestly, Ramita, it it took years and years for me to settle that question because also as a young person, as a teenage, adolescent or teenager, or even young adult, I didn't really have the language to describe what my experience was. You know, of course, you know, my parents from North Carolina, the segregated South they grew up in, you know, I got the, 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 the talk that, you know, all black parents give to their kids. You know, we, we got the talk and part of that talk is the, you know, Baby, you can be anything you want to be. You can even be president if you want to, right? But every like every black kid, you know, my age, you know, remembers hearing those words. It's eerie as if it's part of race memory somehow, you know, that this comes along with the package of being a black American, you know. But imagine my surprise. I want to fast forward to the inauguration of Barack Obama. I sat on the floor in my living room. I bawled like a baby. I cried and cried and cried because everything about my upbringing, about the way our parents sort of laced us together and prepared us for a world outside of the home that may not be as kind to us as inside the home, everything about that said, this can't happen. Even though the affirmation was, you can be anything you want to be, baby. You can even be president if you want. So now we have a president who, you know, our first black president. And suddenly the foundations that I knew and understood, all the rules, like all the social rules, my, the ground shook beneath me because I didn't know where I was anymore because the whole social order up to this point and the way that we were socialized. And you'd asked me, you know, how my experience played into going into education and then really trying to work on that end in terms of changing the experiences and outcomes for not only our black children or children of color, but also for all children, because you know we are a, a ever smaller global society, right? And it's not just enough for me to understand black heritage and black culture and the history of the treatment of black people in this country and around the world, right? If you want to talk about it in that way, but Everybody needs to know this, especially given the um, given the social strati, you know, um, and unfortunately, schools have been guilty of perpetuating, you know, just turning out the same slots, you know, like this person is going to be a CEO, this person is going to be a homemaker, this person is going to be a fast food worker, you know, we just seem to somehow plug into this cycle of just churning out the same thing that we've always had. And schools are in an amazing position to disrupt that cycle. So whereas I've worked in schools that have run the gamut from um, a very diverse student populations to a very homogeneous, you know, so in, you know, a school where it's mostly wealthy and white, those kids need to know as much about black history and culture as anybody else, you know. I agree with you. You know, my daughter introduced me to the the book and the film subsequently, The Hate You Give. And you talk about 
this um, homogenous school situation. And what struck me about the little girl in that film or the book <laughs> is when her parents do put her in a in a more affluent academic school, which is mostly of white race, she doesn't feel she fits in. When she gets home and hangs out with people of the same color as her and go to different schools, she's also ostracized and doesn't feel like she fits in. And I wondered how much of that still affects children today, or maybe it affected you growing up, or if you could speak to that. Absolutely, because I, I think about um, you know the superpower um, of, of confidence that you you know work with with your mentoring program, and that comes from identity, from knowing who you are, and the challenge for Black girls. I'll, I'll talk about Black girls. You know, if you're, we're girl champions tonight, uh, the challenge for that is they're really not allowed to be their authentic selves, you know, um, because of um, the stereotypes that surround um, black people in general than black girls. So there's already this exterior that one has to wear to protect yourself because you're thinking, okay, I'm not the stereotype that you might, that is the bias that you may have teacher or classmate or you know whomever you come against so what happens is since you don't have a good self of your sense of yourself outside of your home because the messages you receive from society from media um say um uh, other things about you you know um societal standards of beauty don't look like you or what you look like when you look in the mirror right um hollywood or movies or the glamorous life only boosts superficial aspects of perhaps people who look like you. We're often not informed or told the truth about the heritage of um, excellence and intelligence and resilience that, you know, the people that you come from. So then you come into a public space like a school and all you desperately want to do is the human thing. I wanna be liked, I wanna be affirmed. I want to feel valued by you. You know, I want the curriculum that I have to study to reflect, you know, me and mine and, you know, to affirm what my background is. And so girls will often morph themselves to fit. Like, remember, if you think about the, the book or the movie that you brought up, she morphed herself to fit into her schooling while she was there. And she became very good at navigating that space, you know, and was an excellent student, right? And then, but she had to shove down who she was to be that. And then when she went back into her home environment, but again, doesn't go to school with the neighborhoods, she had to morph again. And it still was a different person than who she truly was on the inside. And, and never actually felt 100% herself in any of those situations. But this is the hardest part of all of that. But what, do, in your opinion, do you think we can do to change that so that girls, particularly girls who already have such issues around self-confidence in their teen years, in, in spaces where they can't be themselves, how do we change this narrative? Well, you know, it really is. Um, I do a lot of work with um, the staff that wherever I am, the staff you know that I have in the building, to raise their awareness about race and equity and to really not talk, to not only talk about it at an awareness level, but then to bring it to localize that conversation and to bring the faces of 
our students in our school before them and the situations of our students in our school before them to talk about how this, this you know, race or equity issue plays out in our schools with a Karen, for example, with, with me, right? Or with another girl, you know? So you have to, you, you can't mentally assent to the fact that, oh, racism is wrong. Yes, biases are wrong. Yes, we have to be open for everything. You can't just say that and then not walk it out, you know? And there is a disconnect between um, well-meaning educators who understand that there's an issue with um, embracing our black and brown students, you know, and encouraging, you know, if you look at student performance data, you will see uh, gaps, as if you will, in the performance levels of students that is predictable by race. There's no reason for that gap in student to, in performance to exist. There's another force at play that is sorting our student performance levels out by race. They're predictable by race. I will say this, I am a champion for teachers. I believe teachers have the hardest job on the planet because they take in, you know, 30 plus kids of 30 plus different backgrounds, different um, ability levels, and we give them a curriculum and they need to make sure that each of those 30 kids master the curriculum objectives. You know, you got to take them from point A to point B to point C throughout the school year. Um, I think that's, that's a tough job. However, I also think it is the most powerful position to be in in a school because on any given day, a teacher is some child's best opportunity at leveling up in life. Huge shout out to all teachers. We love you. We adore yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We love you, teachers. You are amazing and sending so much love, especially this year. Can't be enough praise sung for them this year, really. There, there really can't be. But yeah, I, and I do think what you said earlier about actually voicing these things and bringing out these really uncomfortable conversations and making them apparent, because I think most of us shy away from uncomfortable conversations because they don't feel good. They're hard. And, and leaning into things that are hard is often the start of change. But, but we, we need the courage to, to do that in the first place of so having people in, in leadership roles such as yourself, I think is a, is a huge thing. How many other schools and, and places in and around the school do you think they have positions of leadership or principals that are of color? Well, let, let me say that, um, you know, I live in a very progressive district. And so we do have, you know, quite a few um, uh, people of color in leadership positions. So ha- that is exciting and that's great. Now, having said that, so I would say black people, right? Um, not as many brown people, and then fewer Asian people, and all those folks do add to diversity, right? Although I know we're, we're focusing on, on, on black uh, children in our conversation. It's easy to put on paper that you are a district or a school that values diversity, you know, and that you are here to support all students. But it's another thing to operationalize that. But if there is no change, then what are we really saying? You know, you know, I understand we have to start somewhere, but you know, let's be honest, any educational institution and not just K-12 schools, but universities, um, we all know 
we know what to do. We have the information to make the change. It, it, I'm thinking about, um, oh, and I'm, I'm gonna call Brian Stevenson. I'm gonna forget the name of his project, but he, you may be familiar with his work for um, uh, legal justice um, in the States. Um, but I heard him um, say, make a statement um, on a program where he talked about a specific town that was having some challenges with, with racial relationships. And he says, you know, the next step is really for the community to step up and say, we've had enough of this, that we no longer want to live or promote a community that um, is either racially segregated or racially hostile. That's not what we want. And when a community rises up together to say that, then the community is empowered to create change, right? I have to go back to, again, if we believe that we're all fully human and if we know, and we know that there are no genetic differences between people of different skin colors, we know that race is a social construct. We literally made it up right? For nefarious reasons. But because we created it, we can actually deconstruct that. We can, we can tear that down. And we can coalesce around a new understanding of embracing, you know, we are all humans. And as such, we are valuable. And let's create a society that works for each of us. And not be judged by the random coloring of the skin. And, and to realize that the, the greatness of having people with different backgrounds and different makeups and back uh, diversities creates a better world. Like the more opinions and different input you get, the, the better the result because you've just taken in and you've taken into account all different types of ways of thinking about a problem, which I think is, which is missing in when we're learning. And if we always hanging out with the same people and doing the same things and we're not really expanding or we were not growing ourselves we're not developing our our thinking and that for me at least um has been has been really instrumental in in understanding how the conversations in classrooms can be different i was going to bring up i don't know if you've seen this i'm going to ask you have you seen the brilliant again it was a book first but then it was produced by Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington into a program called little fires everywhere yeah, yes. of course. I, I mean, and and what I loved so, I mean, the, the incredible astuteness of which they pick up on unconscious bias really shook me because it made me reflect on my own unconscious biases. And I've been doing a lot of reading and, and I know it took the unfortunate incident of last year for so much of this to come into the forefront for us and, and for us to pick up books and to pick up films that possibly we hadn't been um alerted to previously about educating ourselves if you are not of black color to go and and, and go and learn and I think that was uh, hugely important and, and we are still in that movement at the moment and there's so much I want to say about this but really one I one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was that particular scene in the film when when Reese Witherspoon's daughter sort of looks at her black boyfriend and says how can you accuse me of being racist I'm dating you which honestly, I think that is such a great way of educating all of us who think we're not racist because of a certain action that we might outwardly produce. And I think it sort of 
speaks to the thing that you said earlier about not just doing things for the sake of doing things, but but genuinely believing them. Do you have any thoughts on what I've just shared? So many thoughts, so many thoughts run through my head. Um, But you're right, that that show um, did a real nice job, you know, highlighting that concept. I, I will say this in that level of unawareness that was displayed by the daughter, the teenage daughter, is pervasive. And I would also say, so let's take it back to schools, right? Amongst teachers. I I would say that because again, I don't know, there. I cannot think of a teacher in all of my years of education who purposely, um, who intentionally sets out to exclude or to, be offensive or to, you know, uh, put into the curriculum or their implementation of the curriculum, um, exclusionary or racist type things. I, you know, they love kids, you know, and generally they, they love people. But what we don't understand is every teacher, every individual brings in with them their own biases, their own background, and that's the lens through which they do anything. So that's the lens I'm gonna teach you through, you know, if I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I just made that up, I don't, I don't know what happened in there, but if I'm from there, so all of the social mores and cultural mores, I'm bringing that with me and that's how I'm gonna teach you. So it takes an extraordinary effort to step outside of myself to consider the kids in front of me and understand that my way is not the only way, nor may it be the best way, but I am going to put time and effort into researching the, um, if, if, the if the base curriculum doesn't have it in there, to bring in um, uh, elements of the curriculum that diversify it, that connect with my students, that allow us to generate a rich learning environment whereby every one of those 32, 35 seats in front of me can connect to, make sense of, and use that to learn, grow, and develop. You know, it it is unconscionable to, and I, and it happens every day, to think that I would come into a classroom, close the door, and it's going to be my way or the highway, and I'm just going to, you know, throw out information, whether kids are connecting to it or not. You know, and that happens in schools across the country. I'm thinking of my country, maybe across the world every day. So it's a concerted effort, but can I, can I flip that coin for a moment? Guess what else is hard to do? As a black person who has grown up in this culture, you also have to try to sort out, okay, what was real? What's the real narrative? And then what was the narrative that was just fed to me? Because I am now a product of that system of education. That is probably one of the most painful revelations to have because now am I part of the problem and can I dissect it enough so that I can turn around and be part of the solution? Yeah, breaking that cycle is tough, isn't it? But thank goodness for people like you that are bringing this out into the open and allowing us teachers and educators to learn and people listening. Um, It's so important to break those inbuilt Things. I mean, what messages can you give to young people who don't think that they're racist because of X, Y, and Z, but actually understand the true meaning of biases or stereotyping? Do you, do you have lessons at school? Do you address them in assemblies? What, what can we do more of? Well, we can do more of teaching the truth. <laughs> 
Um, we could do more of teaching the truth. And um, there are so many sort of pieces of that pie. Um, when I would say um, with the curriculum that a district adopts, you know, um, because in most school districts, well, let me say many, you know, school districts are very different, but um, most teachers are provided with a curriculum that, you know, you're supposed to use and pacing guides to go through, you know, different units. They do have um, some freedoms to enhance that curriculum from approved, you know, an approved list of alternative texts that you can bring in. Um, you can also, um, in my district, there's a method by which you can submit to have something approved to be used in class, you know. So um, there, there's, there's one area where um, you can make a difference there. Again, with staff, you have to uh, make sure that they themselves are aware. You know, you, there are entire swaths of people, Ramita, who can go through life unaffected by everything that we've talked about here so far. They don't have to, they don't live it. It doesn't impact them in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their friend groups. And so to come to school then, and here comes, you know, the principal, Miss Bryant. <laughs> um, now here we go again in this race and equity meeting, talking about a subject so foreign to me and why can't, you know, these parents just, you know, teach their kids at home and why can't these parents just make sure their kids come to school knowing this already? That, that is, that's a thing. You know, there's a, there's, there are blinders there for people who just don't get it yet. And so, like you said, you have to bring it and put it on the table. It's a consistent bringing back and talking about and working through and helping people to take the high level ideas and then bring them local and replicate or Im Im um, implement those in the classroom with kids in real time. As everybody around the world watched the events of last summer with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, gosh, I'm welling up even as I say it, with absolute despair and what those poor families and everyone around them must have been going through still haunts me to think about the injustice that, was, uh, that occurred. As a person working with young people, living in schools, uh, working in, in cities and, and, and places where these young kids have witnessed something like that as their reality, as something that is so close to home for them. You mentioned the talk that you all have by your parents when you grow up and then actually seeing it play out in this horrifying way. And again, it was probably only brought to the justice system, you know, brought to all of us because of the way things are now filmed on phones. And I've read umpteen times that it's our first time for seeing this, but not necessarily for black people who've been watching this happen for, for many years. We just didn't film it before and, and have the luxury of putting it up on YouTube or wherever else, um, how we all became aware of this. What kinds of conversations and how did it impact your students, those the, the events of last summer? It's funny because your question actually takes me immediately to the staff first, actually. And I remember the, and now remember at this time, we're now virtual. So this is a new experience for us. And I remember the staff meeting that I held. And I myself was a mess, very emotional. And while it was not scheduled to be part of the itinerary for that staff meeting, I could not, as a human being, 
start the staff meeting with anything other than laying my, my own heart bare and providing space for staff to share in that and to, I have to say this, even before I said a word and you know, you have the, all the Brady Bunch tiles up, you know, on the, on the staff, the faces, people were already crying. People were, you know, people were visibly shook. And I took that opportunity to hold space in that moment and to share where I am and then to bring it back around to, this is why we do what we do every day with our students. This is why in teaching them the truth and bringing into the classroom the real life current events and allowing them to process it in ways that make sense in attaching it to your course of study, the class, you know, the course that you are teaching as well as their own lives and help these students process it. I mentioned at the, near the top of our conversation that schools are guilty of churning out the same types of people slotted in the same positions, you know, and I said, I don't ever want it to be said that this staff turned out another police officer whose, whose knee is on the neck of another. We don't want to keep slotting, slotting those positions. So where's the break in our ability to help children relate to each other, relate to themselves and put it all together how can we practice that in our classroom spaces as they move from level to level in schools so that we can disrupt this pattern? But can I ask, was there a, a defeatist or a sense of helplessness and hopelessness from the children when they watched what happened? I, and I was gonna say, yep, the, the same thing we did with the students, we um, hold uh, community circles that gives them a space to process those types of things. And you got the whole range. You got the whole range of it, you know, anger, disbelief. Some students, and I will say, we still had some students who were very sheltered and had to put together, wait, what happened? Because their families had not exposed them to that. Remember, I have middle school, so, you know, I've got some 10-year-olds, some 11-year-olds, you know, towards, you know, 12 and 13. So it's an interesting range right there in the middle. Now, if I were in high school, I have both my backgrounds, both high school and middle school, we considered all secondary. Very different conversations can happen at high school with the older kids, you know. Um, but I find it's important not to, you can't ignore it. It's, it's not business as usual. It is a significant disruption in our lives has occurred. People are hurting. It impacts your classmates. It impacts us. You know, let's talk about it. Let's give them some space to make sense of it as well. Strikes me that conversations are important but what actually shifts and shapes a child's memories and experiences is what they're living what they're actually seeing on tv and if a 10 year old or 11 year old is watching that i i only wonder what kind of then stereotypes they build for police officers or for white males or what could happen the other way and and where their anger can stem from if we don't address it in the, in the right way 
Yes. And then if, if my teacher wasn't comfortable holding space, you know, in a way, or if my teacher brushed away and says, well, we, we can't talk about that in school. Now was that message to me, you know, and, you know, as a kid, you know, you absorb everything, you take everything in and without having an opportunity to hear, you know, factual information and help processing that factual information, I as an adult don't have to tell you, student, what to think. You, you can think for yourself, but I can provide you with factual information. You know, I can provide you with source data. It's a skill that we teach, you know, and the kids can process that, you know, at their level it, with their own timing. And I think it's important to, you know, create the room for them to do that. Otherwise, the story years from now is, yeah, and my school never even talked about it. You know, it wasn't important enough, the slaughtering of Black people in broad daylight over and over and over and over again is not important enough at my school and that person looked just like me. So what does my school think about me? What does my teacher think of me? Gosh, yeah, that spells it out clear, loud and clear, doesn't it? And again, it sort of speaks to, well, I know it does speak, it speaks to the superpower of empathy that I try and keep harping on about with our children which is something that we should be teaching it's not something that innately well some children do have it innately I think maybe it's through modeling at home or school but I don't think we do enough active teaching about what you say which is getting the facts trying to put yourself in somebody else's you know shoes before you make a call or a judgment or you make some sort of statement about a situation without genuinely understanding the truth. And, I, and when you said we should be teaching the truth, I wonder, how do we get there? Let, let me share um, a, an event that happened to me that was pivotal in my own understanding of what's happening to me as a Black person in America. I was in sophomore, uh, the school I went to, uh, I went to the University of Virginia, which has been in the news for all kinds of reasons in recent years. but. Um, uh, as a second year student, I was thrilled to get into this very popular professor's class. And it was a seminar, but it was a seminar that talked about history and a period of time in America around the turn of the century, around the 19th, um, 1900s, where if you track the different um, racial groups in America at that time, in like five, 10 year increments, there was a time where everyone was roughly on the same footing around that time. But if you track them out, every group was able to make advancements, you know, economical advancements, you know, all, all these different lifestyle type of marker advancements, except for one group. And this professor went on to, you know, sort of drew out by putting facts in front of us and sharing details and said, but still just this one group that could not seem to make their advancements didn't seem to keep up with the rest. And I was on the edge of my seat because I'm thinking, you know, it's predictable. I'm thinking I know who this is, you know. And when the professor finally at the end of that lesson said, and finally, I had to come to the conclusion that this group had an active downward force exerting on them that did not allow them to make those same advancements. And that force was active racism. And that group were Black Americans. Ramita, in this 250-seat student auditorium, I, I'm, I'm a little dramatic, but I cried, I cried out loud. You know, people looked at me. 
honestly, it hit me in the heart. And I, I, my friends had to take me out of class because I broke down in tears because what I heard, here's what I heard. I heard for the first time a person in power, the professor, right? Was a white guy, but you know, he, he was well-loved, very um, studious, um, well-researched. I heard a person in power say to me, black people, you are not inherently inferior. For the first time in your whole- For the first time in my life, because the messages you take in tell you that at a subconscious level. But here is somebody providing empirical evidence that no, 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 there's an outside force doing this, pressing down on achievement. You're not inherently dumb. I was, how old was I? What, 19, 20 at the time? I, that's how many years I'd been on the planet before I got an understanding of that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, before and so you were validated that, for who you are. Yes, and that takes me back to the space of empathy, the superpower that you work with with your girls. And I actually think that maybe your, your Black girls or your girls of color might be, they might exude the superpower a little more naturally than others um, due to the fact that they've been minoritized you know, in society and being sort of in that position of under sort of automatically creates in you an understanding of what others, you know, especially since you, you morph to fit in now, right? Morph yourself to fit into places so that you can get the validation that you see other people that are not like you get. But I think they have um, a more developed perception of the need to empathize with others based on their own experience. I haven't tested that out. I just think that that might be true. I understand it. I get it. I think that's a very plausible theory because of the fact that they've had these hardships that they're able to then understand when others are going through hardships, even those in places of privilege. And dare I ask, I know we're coming up to almost almost a year, not quite a year of the wake of all of the Black Lives Matter movements that really erupted in America, but then globally, which was obviously hugely important for us all to see and witness and take part in. Are you at this, maybe it's too early to tell, but have you seen or are you experiencing a shift? Do you notice anything different? Or is life moving in the direction that we wanted to? Well, I'll tell you where I do see a shift. I'm seeing a shift in Black people and their willingness to take a back seat. Like, they're no longer willing to take a back seat, less willing to morph the way that we've been talking about it, less willing to be silent, um, more willing to take risks at showing up as my authentic self, whatever that may look like. Maybe that looks like um, I'm going to allow, I'm going to wear my hair natural as opposed to altering it with chemicals, right? Maybe it shows up as, you know, I'm going to you know, have that conversation with my boss and um, ask for that raise, detailing the value that I bring to this organization and comparing it to, you know, my colleague who I just found out makes $25,000 more than me for doing less. Um, I'm seeing them being willing to back away from the, you have to be 110% better than your white counterpart in order to get half as much respect, which is part of the talk, the traditional talk that we receive, right? So permission to unburden 
ourselves from that weight because it's a weight. You know, you talk about our young girls and the differences in maybe their academic performance or their their um, socialization. You know, try putting a hundred pounds of weight on each shoulder of a black kid who's got to carry the weight of those stereotypes and biases and um, social oppositions and microaggressions. How free do you feel to you know write a great essay or how free do you feel to you know um, distinguish yourself in algebra in seventh grade? I mean, that's a lot of weight to carry. That's the, the shift that I mostly see. It's, in, it's interesting that you say that. I feel the same tone exists in terms of the exhaustion that perhaps the Black people are now ready to admit that we have been saying this and teaching and informing you for long enough. If this is what it's the first time you've decided to, to open your eyes to it, then go out and find out about it rather than expecting us to make to, to bend down for that kind of change I think that's interesting but also I don't know about you and it could be because I'm always a half glasses full kind of teacher I find at least for my own children that and without burdening the next generation I, I, I'm very aware of the fact that we always think they'll we made the mistakes you're gonna fix them um we, we seem to do that a lot with our, our sort of our students and our children but I do, maybe I'm wrong here, but, and you can help me reflect on this in a more accurate way, but I feel that the kids of today are not in the same place that when I was at school, had the ignorance and lack of understanding of what was going around. I didn't grow up with, with, with education around any of this. And I grew up in Canada. So we're a multicultural country. We really are. And, I, and I'm grateful that we used to celebrate Chinese New Year and we used to celebrate all sorts of things around us. But I don't think I was educated in the way that I think the children today, at least, are being informed. What do you think about that? I, I agree. I think we're doing a better job at that. And I am also glass half full. You know, I am very much an optimist and um, I'm a hopeful person. And so I know every time conversations like this happen, every time, you know, we open up a community circle at school, you know, for kids to process, you know, the latest event in our country, you know, we've had a, a very active, you know, last four or five years, you know, um, and, you know, with every conversation, with every meeting of the minds, with every um, opportunity to handle the truth, change happens, you know, and students are better able to, first of all, they have so much access with the internet, you know, than we, can you imagine, you know, so they have more information at their fingertips, which makes it incumbent upon us to really help them to be smart consumers of content. So they know what they're looking at and they can check source data and not just run with, you know, the first tweet or, um, you know, with the kids like, you know, TikTok and, you know, you know, the information that they find there, but they really can chew on and process information and data that they get to then turn it around and use it in a productive way. I'm hopeful. And I, uh, you know, kids are smart. They're very smart. Um, and they have led the way for many a teacher and adult in many, in some cases you know, with this work. And I'm very proud of, of them for that. Um, That's the thing, they, they, they're born 
with none of this, right? It's it, it all gets fed somewhere. It, they get conditioned into thinking certain ways and no child, I don't believe, is ever born um, with any bad thoughts in their mind. Uh, it's only what they've learned from around them. So breaking these barriers and really, really, really allowing them to see a full circle is down to how we present information and how we teach them, I think. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. So there's oh. always hope. <laughs> there's always hope. There's always hope. And, and I, I'm grateful that we are able to have these conversations. And I do think what you said here is an important message again, is perhaps it's not down to the, the black children to make the change. It's down to everyone around them that has the preconceived notions around what it means to be a black girl or a black person in general and, and let us make the, make the change that, that needs to exist really. So I'm going to really emphasize that point today. I'm going to say if there's anything else that you take away from this is if you are a person listening to this that is not Black, then thank you for being the person to, to take the time to listen. But also if you would be the person to, to start making the shifts, then we'd all benefit. Yes. Thank you in advance. <laughs> thank you in advance for that, yes. Great. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for being here. Thank you for taking the time. I don't even know where the hour is gone, but we've been chatting for an hour and I've, I've been grateful, grateful to have had this conversation with you. And I'm on upon all from, from the bottom of my heart, from all the children around that are lucky enough to have you as an educator. Thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. And in turn, I want to thank you as well for continuing to mentor girls into those, those five superpowers. Way to go with that. I'm, I'm just so impressed with that effort, and um, I wish you well. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm so emotional. <laughs> it, it, it's so nice to have um, people in places such as yours acknowledging the work that we need to do for our children. So Let's keep the forces going together. And I'm sure, I'm sure maybe we'll have another conversation for another podcast series and we'll have a whole different conversation to be had based on what we've learned today. Thank you again. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prespatino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.